next season than this season because they're losing Kutsia and they're trying well, I mean, to mitigate that. To sign Bill Mata, so that would have been close enough. But he's still not the level of Kutsia. Like Mata, Mata would be a step up on Nakarawa, and you could play him at number eight. I don't think Nakarawa will play number eight. I don't think he has the. I think he's better uh, suited to six, where you can use him as a lineout option. But Mata's still not the level of Kutsia. You were never going to get in a player of Kutsia's standing unless you went and got an All Black or a Springbok out of com- or who was still in contract. And in the current financial situation, you're not shelling out the money to do that. So has Mata not been voted ahead of Kutsia at number eight on the team of the year like three years in a row? Not saying that the team of the year is the be all and end all, but I think he might be closer than you give him credit for. He's obviously known then primarily as a, a lock. That's where he uh, made all the headlines and did all the, the, the great things that he's done in the sport and in the World Cup the Dream Team in 2015, which I haven't uh, mentioned either at number five. But if he's coming to Ulster to play in the back row, Jonathan, what, how much have we seen of him uh, in that position? And, um, you know, is he as good a back row as he is a lock? No, uh, he's not. Well, half his games for Glasgow in his second stint have came as a back row. Now, it's half of four games, but yeah. he's he's played a blindside twice. So you figure that he's going to slot in at six then. And then, like I know me and Adam talked about this already, but um, you've got some combination there then of Jordy, Reedy, Timoney, I suppose rotating through the seven and eight positions with Dave McCann on the horizon as well. So... It's more, I guess it's more about replacing the attributes. So while he carries in a different way, Nakawara is the attacking threat of Katsia's game. That's what you're looking to from him. The defensive side of his game and the breakdown threat of his game, you're going to have to get from Reedy or Jordy or Timoney. So it's sharing out the workload, but I think it would have been far easier to share out that workload if you were getting his um, carrying threat from your second row in Nagawara, and then you had another back rower to uh, carry the load in that way. Is this just down to finance then, that the, they've done it this way, um, by only signing, signing one player rather than two? Well, in a, like in a way, it's, you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul in a way, like because if you look at the amount of contracts, and I'm sure we'll get on to this, the amount of contracts that have come out wouldn't exactly be in line with the financial picture that was being projected come two or three months ago so a lot of money's been free freed up and it's clearly been plowed into the squad in different areas because in what's a, a very difficult time for professional rugby generally also are keeping almost everybody <laughs> yeah and, and bear in mind they could have let carter go and kept yeah. nakarawa or brought in nakarawa as the second row and gotten someone else in the back row so they have made the choice to keep another se- another foreign second row instead of signing Nakarawa as a second row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose it really comes down to whether any of the Leinster back rowers surplus could have been convinced to come to Belfast. But equally, if you look at the international prospects of McGrath, Cooney, Murphy, like what's been used as a big selling point hasn't proven to be the case because nobody's helped their international careers by coming here. So how often you're going to be able to continue to use that as a selling point was always going to be up for debate. And, you know, there's a possibility that that's just um, dried up. 
well, that's a that's a a much larger worry then for for Ulster, given how much they've relied on going to that well over over recent years. Yeah, but I mean, you can't rely on you you couldn't rely on it in the long term anyway. So the long the health of Ulster long term is going to be through the guys that are currently coming through the academy. The, yeah. the rake of guys that got bumped up to uh, senior deals, and that's better for the province anyway because. As has been pointed out, it's very unlikely that you're going to get better than Leinster by taking players that, while very good players, aren't getting games for Leinster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, a couple of questions on this signing. MPC asked what positions he going to play and is he the Marcel replacement? I think we've, we've already addressed that one. Now McDonald's question fits in with what you're saying about the, the academy players. So he asked, will the arrival of Nakarawa next season is his biggest impact going to be on helping the development of the likes of McCann and more so Izuchukwu as the uh, a seven second row player and he just says with Ulster's attacking style development uh, he thinks it's a great signing so is that, a, that another significant part of, uh, of bringing Nagarawa in? Well I think especially in light of having watched the A side of late they play in a style which people have been quick to credit to Dan McFarland's overall vision for how Ulster should play. Mm. Um, that is looks to be much more based upon that. Maybe not based upon, but you can see the evidence of that collective speed idea and the offloading. And mm. I think Adam mentioned is a chukri there, or maybe that was last week, just about how he's of that style. And one thing that Nakawara does as well as anybody in the Pro 14, is play at that high tempo because he can get the offload away when it looks like there's no possibility of him ever doing it. So for Ulster to play at that tempo that they want to play at and the tempo that we saw that the A-team were able to play at because of you know the offloading game of the likes of Izzichukri, yeah, I think it could be, um, it could be a big help towards making making the leap towards that style. Even even if he's not going to be a teacher per se or, or a mentor to Izuchukui, it would be good for Izuchukui just to watch how Nakarawa plays in training or get to see him up close because while it's okay to emulate what someone does in a match, getting to see how they prepare in a week and how they uh, approach their style of game in training will be valuable. And for someone like Izuchukwu, who's already shown that he has a very similar skill set to Nakarawa, and ideally, I think Ulster would be delighted if Izuchukwu could mature into a player who did play a similar style to Nakarawa at senior level, not just in the A-team. For Cormac to get a chance to see what Nakarawa does in training and to be able to say, okay, well, this is how he looks for offloads this is how he knows where to make the right decisions and how to get his arms free and tackles and be able to even just present himself as an option for an offload I think will be invaluable now I, I'm not sure if Ulster necessarily want him to become Nakarawa 2.0 but certainly I think having that as part of a skill set especially in the collective speed uh, aspect of how Dan wants the team to play if there's something that he can take from Nakarawa, then yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great for him to see, which is ironic because we are still talking about Nakarawa as a back row, not a second row for Ulster. But um, yeah, the, the, there's definitely something to be said about 
having him in as someone for uh, is a chick way to look up to. I think you're very like your very first part there. It's like it's important to remember that as well because you know you don't know. You can say that this guy is going to come in and be a quote unquote mentor, but that's part of somebody's character more than any anything else. Like you know. We don't know it. We don't know anything about his character. Whereas you look at people like Ian Madigan as an example, right? So Ian Madigan has it within his character to be to fill that sort of mentoring role, and not even just without half, just with young players in the squad in general. And you know, it's something people talk about with Matheson as well. But it's a very individual thing because some mm-hmm. people simply aren't good teachers. Like it's it's a closed skill almost in a way. You know, that's completely separate to playing. So. Mm-hmm. And, it's and very, this is it's very this, hard to know before somebody gets here, like how suited to that role they're going to be. And this is the thing, like throughout his career, Nakarawa has been said as being a very good uh, dressing room presence. Teams that he has played for have unilaterally said he's a great guy in the dressing room. He's a great guy to have, like for a bit of banter, a bit of good chat, and stuff like that. So through that, he can be a good, a good mentor without even needing to teach anything to anybody else he can just be that good influence and then simply by watching him and training guys can learn so yeah i i yeah i, I would completely agree with johnny I, I don't necessarily attribute myself to players need to be good at sitting down with another player and imparting this knowledge onto them as long as they're doing the right things in training and they're being a good teammate there's a lot that other players can learn from them and simply by watching them Cormac as a chick we could learn a lot from Leonie Nakarawa. And obviously having worked with him before, Dan McFarlane will, will certainly know exactly what he's getting in the overall package uh, of Leonie Nakarawa in terms of his uh, his character and his ability and, and everything else besides. So on to the, uh, the many contract uh, announcements that we've had since the beginning of last week. Now, I make it, if I've totted it all upright, 23 players have been announced as having extended their Ulster contract since last, what was it, Monday or Tuesday, whenever they started this uh, rolling daily announcement. No doubt by the time you've heard this, there may even be two, three or four more. It's hard to say at this stage when this is going to stop, if ever. It might just keep uh, going. We haven't had Sparky or the tea lady or the ground yet. So. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's still many more to come. There's there's sure to come, don't worry. Um so, three PM today, tune in. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> so what people seem to have been more interested with then as this sort of progresses and more and more people get tied down is who hasn't signed a new contract yet. Now the one real massive standout name that is out of contract this summer and who still hasn't been announced yet is Ian Henderson, but uh, does somebody want to explain why that's uh, that's not of uh, or shouldn't be of any concern to supporters at this stage? Well, Ulster aren't the ones who announce uh, centrally contracted players. It's the RFU, so Ulster won't be announcing this as their own deal, and um, they'll have to wait for the RFU to announce it, which is probably why they're not announcing it right now. But it is our understanding that he. It has agreed or is very, very close to agreeing a new two-year deal with the RFU to stay at Ulster until, well, that'd be 2023. So um, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. And we, we had that in the paper on Saturday. So. Mm, yeah. 
Yep. So uh, the the captain's then, and that leaves then three players who we know to be out of contract uh, this summer, whose future has not been announced yet. Now there are a few unknowns which we'll get to, but for now, if we deal with the three players that uh, that we know to be out of contract, uh, and what we we sort of expect from that, uh, the first one, Jonathan, is Matt Faddis. What are we thinking, given everybody else that is signed new deals at this stage? including, I suppose, some of those uh, academy prospects that, well, as expected, have been tied down the likes of Ethan McElroy and Aaron Saxon in the back three. Yeah, well, obviously there was interest in a few of those guys from elsewhere, which maybe prompted a sooner-than-normal senior contracts or development contracts leading to senior contracts. So I think, yeah, if you're looking at it, those guys that are coming through, the expectation is that they're going to push on and then there wouldn't be as much of a role for Fadis, so... No, I wouldn't be too surprised by it. But. So probably at this stage, providing this isn't out of date by the time by the time we go we go out, you're expecting potentially that Matt might be might be moving on. I believe so, from what I've heard anyway. Um, as you say, like <laughs> we could be surprised come three o'clock and this is redundant, <laughs> but that's what I've heard anyway. And uh, Adam then Louis Ludic, who once again, obviously all these players coming through uh, in those back positions. Louis, I'm just trying to look at what age he is, but he's certainly uh, in his thirties anyway. Is uh, is this Louis's time? Thirty four at this stage. Is this Louis's time to retire? I I believe so. And it, it, this is probably the toughest one of them all because he's been such a great servant to Ulster. He's um he's a great guy. If, uh, anytime you chat to him he's he's so great got so much time for you and always positive we we would always joke that he was the one rolled out to the media whenever there was a there was a bad result because he would still have a smile on his face and he'd still be a really happy guy and but yeah I think just with all the injury issues that he's had over the last couple of years and with all the young talent pushing through I think there's there's just no place for him in the squad anymore, unfortunately. But he's he's got his company here in Northern Ireland that uh, I'm sure he'll be delighted to get to spend more time with, and he can walk away knowing that he's given everything he can to the province, and nobody should be uh, nobody should be holding anything against him. Mm-hmm. And then the last one then of the players whose contracts definitely expire this summer is Albie Matthewson, Jonathan, who came in, obviously, last summer and has so far played nine games. He's 35, but is it the stage that he sort of came in, fulfilled the role that he he was brought in to do and um, passing on his knowledge and that uh, and playing his part on the pitch and now that, that'll be it? Or are you expecting him to get another, maybe one year, Dave? Well, I suppose, like you mentioned, the role that he was brought in for, it's obviously not his fault at all, but the role that he was brought in for was really to provide experience scrum half whenever John Cooney was away with Ireland mm-hmm. which when he was signed made perfect sense but I think in a nice uh, nice coincidence that the day that his signing broke was the last the day of the last cap that John Cooney won for Ireland so the two uh, <laughs> these things that were meant to overlap actually ended up completely separate through no fault of Matthewson's and no fault of Cooney's either you may argue but um it almost creates a redundancy almost because, you know, he's there to cover Cooney and you don't need cover for Cooney. The idea that you've seen the contract with Neil Fashanahan as well mm-hmm. and Nathan Duke being brought into a development contract. So you'd want to see more of Nathan Duke than you've seen this season, next season. Shanahan's still going to be there. And 
John Kinney still got that one year left on his contract. So mm-hmm. I think in like in an ideal world where finances weren't an issue and NIQ places weren't an issue, that sort of thing, you could absolutely see great value in keeping Matheson on because I think he's been good when he's played. He's not been helped either by the fact that him, Carter and Fadas can't play at the same time. So mm-hmm. there's been a fair amount of things working against him, but I still think he's contributed what was expected. From a personal point of view, like he obviously whenever he signed as well, wasn't expecting to be coming into a pandemic. So he lives here. He lives by himself. His family are in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. And he's moved to a new city and a new team at a time when you can't socialize with any of them. So, or anybody. Yeah. So it's very, you know, it's very, very difficult. Absolutely. He'll maybe be be glad to return home then come the end of the season. And who could blame him for that? So the unknowns that we have at this stage, so there's 23 players that have signed a new contract and then there's a list of players whose contracts either uh, go on to 2022 or 2023. The likes of John Cooney, as you mentioned there uh, earlier, Jonathan, Billy Burns, Will Allison, Jordy Murphy, and plenty more besides. Uh, And then there's some that for one reason or another, whenever their contracts are announced, they're is no date announced along with them. Now, that actually happened last week with a few of the players, I think. I can't remember who it was now, but there was one of the announcements, I think, was there not? That had a... No, I thought there were years and all of them, which is unusual and very helpful. Uh, breaking a trend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like it... Leinster, for instance, don't announce any contracts. Yeah. And I know that our newspaper brethren in Scotland are increasingly frustrated by things like Edinburgh announcing record contract lengths without saying how long the contract is. <laughs> yeah. So this is actually a great, you know, we should be very thankful for this. The yeah. thing is, I, I don't understand why teams wouldn't announce contract lengths because the only thing that it hinders is fans knowing how long you've got a fans knowing how long you've got a player signed up for. Like if an agent wants to know or when a team wants to know when a player's contract is up, they just call the agent and the agent knows. So it's not like you're well, hiding information thing. from teams. Like yeah. I, c- I could understand the idea that say, for instance, not that I think anybody in the top 14 is listening to our podcast or anything. Like I'm not that, uh, <laughs> I'm not that big headed in any way, but if we're talking about Ian Henderson and everybody's talking about Ian Henderson being out of contract this summer, like, does it just become a story and then it filters out, not filtered out, but you know, somebody sees that and is like, Oh, you know, well, you know, we could do with it Anderson. But then my understanding of how it all works is that basically when clubs are in the market for certain players, they go to agents and agents provide them with a list of all the players that are available or might be available. Yeah. Um, was my understanding of how the process works. I'm sure. So let's just cut out the middleman and start announcing there, contract lights. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the players yes that we have this following conversation will hopefully be avoided in years to come but for now there are still players whose contract lengths we don't know and those are James Hume Bill Johnson Ross Cain Adam McBurney Kyle McCall and Eric O'Sullivan so perhaps by the time this has come out those are the, the type of players if we're not expecting Faddis Matthewson or Ludic to sign you days, maybe these are the type of players that that will be announced because a lot of those players who were announced uh, already were were formerly on that unknown list, the likes of Robert Balakoon um, and, and plenty of others were on that. So maybe those are the names we'll be keeping an eye out over the coming days. So well, a couple- I think, like Johnson's an interesting one because I think the talk is that he was a two-year contract and that he, he may not be here next year. Like, I think Johnson's been good when he's played mm-hmm. um, for the most part. But again, Madigan coming in and Madigan now signing a two-year contract... It sounds like he's he's not going to be here, and if you were him, 
quite possibly understandable that he maybe wouldn't want to be here because, you know, he came up to be second choice and was very quickly third choice, I suppose. We've talked about this before, but again, in an ideal world, he'd be a player that, you know, there'd be no harm in him still being here, but doesn't look like likely to be the case. Where could you see the opportunity for him then to go and, and get more game time? Well, me and Adam were talking about this not that long ago. Like, um, whenever he arrived, obviously Madigan wasn't here and Joey Carberry wasn't injured. So, like, he probably would have got more as much game time <laughs> if he had have stayed a monster. Like, obviously, with um, Healy and Crowley coming through, that might not be the case down the line. Um, I, at Munster, but I think over the past two years he probably would have played more there. But it's a shame, I think. Yeah. You could probably see him going to the championship or something like that. You know, do, doing one of those moves, trying to revitalize his career in in England and work work his way up there. But it's a real shame because I I do think he does have a lot of talent, and it's just a case of he hasn't managed to get a good long string of games to sort of really take it to the next level. Because I think one of the things that you overlook is how important it is to get a good run of games under your belt and to really become comfortable in a team, especially at fly half where there's so much pressure on you to run the line and make sure every week that you're giving your team a chance to compete. So hopefully he will, he will get a good chance somewhere to be the first choice rather than being in and out of the team and trying to make it, make his mark and sort of spot appearances. Just before we move on to a couple of questions about these contracts, any of those 23, we're not going to go through them all, any of those you uh, have any, any points of note on or can we move on? Well, I think in, in a wider sense, now obviously they could see a situation change the financial picture somewhat, but I just think it's interesting that we didn't see the uh, exodus, if you like, that was rumoured because of the financial impact of COVID-19. Like it didn't happen. If you look at what was presumed to be the sort of squeezed middle, if you like, you know, experienced guys that not passed it by any means, but on the downside of the mountain of their careers, if you like, um, were retained. So as part of what was predicted to be a fairly negative trend, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had Billy Holland and Munster sort of talking about it last week there, a fair bit behind but just the amount of stress and strain mentally the players were under whenever there was this talk that an awful lot of senior guys weren't going to get offered deals yeah and certainly at Ulster it doesn't doesn't seem to have panned out that way which brings us on neatly to Martin McGowan's question are the renewals from the last week a good indicator of Ulster's financial position going forward or is it still uncertain which is basically what you're you're edging towards there anyway yeah well I mean Whenever we were talking about this, and I think whenever Johnny Petrie spoke to the BBC, whenever that was about the last time he spoke about the financial situation, it was before they were losing their highest paid player with a year left on his contract, which brings, obviously, talk of a buyout as well. So um, I suppose that's not that it was wanted, but it's an injection of cash and a significant slash to the wage bill. You, you wonder almost in a converse way what this has done for the unity within the squad. And, you know, obvi- obviously you don't want Marcel to go because you've got him under contract for another year and he's a very good player. But what will the morale be like if you're keeping the core of the squad together rather than having to jettison a load of guys simply because you're strapped for cash? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's one of those ones where we'll never know 
because obviously the in an ideal world you would have kept Marcel for the final year of his contract and then he would have gone back to South Africa but the fact is instead of Ulster having to lose maybe 10 players it looks like they're only going to lose maybe four or five so you've still got a lot of guys there who are feeling like you know yeah the the team have put a lot of faith in me to come back for another year or another two years and really fight for this team and you know potentially go on and challenge for trophies so Marcel leaving might end up being a, a bit of a silver lining you know that if you're able to keep a few more players, there's just that bit more of that squad mentality sticking around. Mm. Yeah. So one last question before we move on to Ireland and the Six Nations. It comes in from Paul Walker, Teddy Thomas, who of course is uh, rumoured to be leaving Racing 92 to replace Matt Faddis, he suggests. Is there that much of a financial injection of the holster? Yeah, I don't know if there's quite that much money floating around anymore. Um, don't know what uh, the likes of Sexton, McElroy and Laurie would make of that either. But um, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, Nakarawa and Teddy Toma on the same team would be a lot of flair. Oh, well, yeah. they were in the same team. Yeah, no, I know, but to, but to reunite them at Kingspan Stadium would be a lot of fun. Apologies for uh, Anglo. Bring Zebo back to get the whole band back together. <laughs> um. Okay, so the Six Nations preparation, obviously, well underway. Uh, and Ulster helped out with that on Sunday, wasn't it? They were down for a, a bit of a competitive training session. Donal uh, asks, is there any truth uh, to the rumour that Ulster won the mini-game? And if so, can we now claim to be the best team in Ireland? Well, they're second in the table to Leinster now, so even, that, uh, <laughs> even that's gone now that uh, Leinster demolished is not too strong a word to use yeah uh, the scarlets on uh on saturday so leinster sees demolished the scarlets <laughs> yeah, uh, was, to be uh, fair it was, it was something close to scarlet sees as well but good great fairly brutal for the hopes that they weren't going to get a bonus point and uh you know i think i think we always expected them to win but the fact that they uh had the bonus point wrapped up so early sort of took the intrigue out of out of it from an holster perspective because i do think that was that was the most likely dropped point i think for them, well, to, looking to down the fair, track for the rest of the season, apart aside from that Ulster game. Yeah, after watching the Munster game earlier in the day, I was hoping that Lightning would strike twice, and after scoring two early tries, the Irish province would sort of struggle to score for the rest of the game, but you just know Leinster too good for that. Yeah, Leinster's remaining games. We're supposed to be talking about the Six Nations here, I should remind you, but here we are. Leinster's remaining fixtures are away to Dragons, at home to Glasgow, the Ulster match, and then away to Zebra and at home to Ospreys. So, yes, it is uh, very hard there to see any drop points forthcoming. It's a very, it's a very similar run in the Ulster have, though. So, yeah. um... But on the bright side, it really does focus Ulster's minds on it has to be bonus points yeah. the whole way in. Like that, if, if there's anything you take from it in terms of another silver lining, it's that... Ulster have to get five points from every game and there's no sort of wiggle room because you know anytime you slip up by not getting a bonus point, Leinster are going to capitalise by getting a bonus point themselves. So at least it kind of gives them that one-track mind almost. You're very good for the silver linings on a Wednesday 
in February when it's literally rained for 48 straight hours. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how you're doing it, but um... maybe, maybe I'm just hoping that the silver lining will come out like literally outside my room. <laughs> but yeah, like if you don't get bonus points, then you figure that it's not even going to matter that Ulster Leinster game because it's already finally poised. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but Ulster need to win without and deny Leinster losing bonus or. They basically need to get four more points in Lancer, isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. So yes, the Six Nations boys. I don't like. Does this uh, indicate how excited you both are for the Six Nations that you just quickly uh, evaded any sort of discussion on it? But I'm going to bring you back because uh, Ireland do play Wales on Sunday at three o'clock. So, what are we looking at in terms of team selection from uh, an Ulster perspective? Obviously, Rob Herring will start. We don't know quite whether Ian Henderson would be ready to start or not. Certainly, uh, when he the, the when he spoke to the press the other day, it did seem like he was maybe fairly hopeful. But we're really looking at Herring, possibly Henderson, possibly Burns on the bench. Yeah, like Furlong obviously got forty minutes, a planned forty minutes in that um, Leinster Scarlets game that we talked about. So I guess he's got as many minutes in the tank as he's going to have before making his return. So I think you'll probably likely see Porter start and Furlong on the bench, which would mean Tom O'Toole is the, as an extra man. Mm. Herring, yep. The injury to Doris is going to make it interesting in the back row, I think, because to shame, like Doris was probably one of the, um, or certainly the, the Irish player is probably most looking forward to seeing in this in this championship. Um, so to lose him, like, because you could just go for the straight number eight replacement in Conan. You could rejig a bit with um, Will Connors and Van der Flyer coming in and move Omani back to six. You could have Roddick at six and keep Omani at seven. Or you could have Ty, um, Tag Byrne come in and play six with standard eight. And obviously that would really push you towards Henderson making his comeback from injury alongside James Ryan. So there's loads of options in that sort of um, back five or at least five forwards, I guess. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what way they're going to go right now. The team's named on Friday, which is a wee bit later than we have seen under Andy Farrell. So. I would say you go with Byrne because if you look back at that Munster-Lanster game, which you almost see as kind of like that final trial for the for the Six Nations, Byrne was brilliant in that game. And I think you make room for him at six and then that allows you to bring Henderson back in. It, it's no secret how much uh, Farrell likes uh, Henderson. So I think uh, that's probably where he'll be leaning towards. It's tough to put Henderson straight into uh, the team given he's been out so long. But, you know, I, I think whenever you see how much he's relied on him in the past, and how much he likes to put him in. I think you'd be inclined to put Byrne in at six. You keep Omani at seven, where he does seem to be thriving right now, uh, and that allows you to sort of play your your ideal scenario for, for Farrell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. It's interesting. There's loads and loads of combinations that you could go with. Yeah, it'll be very interesting come Friday. Is there anything to read into in this uh, change of tact over when he announces the team, or what's that about? No, well, interestingly, they're playing on Sunday next week as well and announcing on Thursday. Like, I guess there's obviously the assumption that um, they may be waiting for Sexton 
Um, the Sexton's meant to be speaking this afternoon, and the RFU put up pictures of him in the biosecure bubble training today. So it looks as if he's going to be fine. We're just going through that sort of annual muscle strain that he seems to be carrying into the Six Nations, and then he plays because all the talk of him being injured actually makes you think that he misses much many more games than he does. But um, when it comes to the Six Nations, he's near ever present. Yeah. And what do I think about Billy Burns? Are you likely to see him named on the bench? I would say so. If you look back to the Nations Cup, um, not that many people really want to, but he was second choice then. And I think you need a fly half on the bench given Sexton's injury profile. And especially if you've got a game one, you really want to bring Saxon off and sort of wrap him in cotton wool so he's available for the next week. So I if you go, you're not worried about getting thumped by bringing him off. Well, well, yes, a very good point. But if you if you look if you look back to the Nations Cup, Burns was second choice behind Sexton. Then I wouldn't have said there was anything over the last what what's two months, three months since then to suggest that Burns has dropped down the packing order since then. So I would say that. Uh, Burns would probably be second choice um, by extension of the fact that you would need a fly half on the bench to spot Saxon just in case then yeah I would say Burns probably included on the bench. I think it would be very harsh on him if he had dropped down the pecking order because as I said I don't think he was bad in the few games he played for Ulster since the Nations Cup I don't think anybody necessarily stood out since then if anything Ross Byrne was better at 13 than he has been at 10 uh, since the Nations Cup so I would yeah, Cardi's been class but he's on the squads <laughs> well yeah that's that's why I didn't mention him like Cardi had an outstanding game against Leinster and then somehow that didn't get him called up to the Ireland squad but um, yeah I, I would have Burns on the bench yeah okay well we'll see uh, come Friday at uh, noon when the team is announced an interesting game then in terms of Ireland's aspirations in the overall tournament. Jonathan, what are you expecting? And uh, Well, I suppose we'll, we'll know a lot more as to what we can expect this time next week. This is a massively, massively key game for Ireland because if they lose it and then they're, they've got England and France, who we all assume are the two best teams coming to Dublin, there's the potential for it to get quite messy quite quickly. Like, if you only win two games, it's a disappointment, obviously. I think that you have to look at it as Ireland are probably seen as the third best team. Mm -hmm. And I think if they come set anything better than third, then I think it's going to be seen as a bit of a bonus. And if they come anything worse than third, um, it's going to be seen as another bad campaign. And And they're only the third best team because Scotland and Wales are going through periods where they're just not that good. You know, it's, it's not like Ireland are third best because they are sort of the third best of three good teams. They're sort of the best of four per teams at the moment. So that that's why you're looking at this game as very important because Wales are not a good team right now. And it's interesting to see that Wayne Pivak has kind of pivoted away from his building up youth aspect and he's brought a few more experienced guys back into the mix like Dan Lydiot and Jake Balls back in even though he's confirmed he's going back to Australia at the end of the season so he's actually going to be an option for Wales only until 
the end of the Six Nations and then he'll probably fall under the Gatland rule and he won't be able to play for them anymore. So Pivak's very much put a lot of emphasis on we need to win games. And if Ireland find themselves in a position where, as Johnny said, you lose to Wales, you've got France and England in Dublin, which are very losable games right now, then two wins from this Six Nations is a massive underachievement for Ireland. Two, two wins from the Six Nations in any year for Ireland is a massive underachievement. And yet you're staring down the very realistic possibility that if they don't win this weekend, they could be coming away from the Six Nations finishing fourth. Which... Again, it, I suppose it's all about momentum and about perspective. And you know how we all are as sport fans. One good result and everything seems so much more rosy. So if, Ulster, or if Ireland win this weekend then does there start to be the thought that creeps in that goes with the two best teams at home could win those and then you expect to win the other two could do the Grand Slam? Well, absolutely, because if they win on Sunday, then people start to think, well, you know, France have a few injury problems. They haven't travelled well to Dublin in recent times. Then you've got Italy, who you're going to beat because they're useless. You've got Scotland, who are going to be something of an unknown quantity because they've been making improvements really since the World Cup, but we're starting from such a low bar. And then because you've got England last, similar in the way that you had France last in this, um, sorry, in last year's competition, like you could carry your championship ambitions into the last round purely by <laughs> sort of floating along to winning the games that people expect you to if you win on Sunday. Whereas if you don't yeah. win on Sunday, then all of a sudden... People are like, oh, well, France are probably the best team. You know, you could <laughs> be sat here what, going into the last day in February having lost two from two. Yeah. So really, in conclusion, they might win the Grand Slam or it might be a complete disaster or it might be anything in between. Yeah, that was pretty much what I said there. Yep, that it, <laughs> things will either go well or terribly. And it'll it depend tends to be that way every year. Lose games. <laughs> Well, what do we, I'm going to have to uh, push you for more of a professional opinion than that. What do you think is going to happen this weekend? I think Ireland will win this weekend because I don't see any reason to think that Wales are going to be better in 2021 than they were in 2020. Okay. So then this time next week, we can build up to the potential Grand Slam. Well, we all know my fondness for French rugby. So this time next week, I'll probably be extolling the virtues of um, a French team that are going to roll into Dublin and uh, win the whole win the whole thing in round two, probably. So one final question then comes in from our regular listener Stephen McCormick, who asks: Is Paddy Jackson now the best Irish qualified ten? Well, I suppose he's not considered Irish eligible, is he? Because he's not playing in um, not playing in Ireland. It's been a uh, fine, fine run of form. I think no matter like no matter what your stance on his exile, no London Irish pun intended. <laughs> the fact that he's playing at this level, I think, sorry, the fact that he's playing at this level after really a break is what's so noteworthy about it because yes. the, when he was, I suppose, last really considered as a rival to Johnny Sexton, it was off the back of that South Africa tour in 2016. Like, that's four and a half years ago. Obviously, like, Perpignan weren't a great team. The... First year in London Irish, he had a hamstring injury and then obviously disjointed with um, 
coronavirus stuff as well. But yeah, I think he was obviously nominated for Player of the Month, and then I think he did he get Man of the Match again at the weekend. I think um, he did. Yes. Yeah. So he's obviously <laughs> in an eye-catching run of form. Mm-hmm. I, w- I watched him against Harlequins a couple of weeks ago, maybe only a week ago, um, and he was excellent then. Um, landed a great panel or conversion at the end to earn a draw. I th- this was always going to be the thing that you were looking out for whenever or whenever he left. You know, if he got into a run of form like this, what what would happen? And he he is one of the form Irish tens. Like it's, you can't deny that he is playing really well for London Irish he is being talked about nearly every week for his performances and that's no surprise he is a he is a very very good rugby player mm. and that that's just a fact but as Johnny said he's not playing his rugby in Ireland and he will not be selected by Ireland until he is playing his rugby in Ireland mm. and at this moment we don't know if that's ever going to be the case again so just to entertain the premise of the question, if we're talking about ability alone, is Paddy Jackson's best rugby playing Irish team? I think like the, t- the team's still built around Johnny Saxon and Johnny Saxon's the captain. So in this hypothetical world in which you're living in, where he could be selected, I, the captain's not going to get dropped, is he? No. He, he, he would definitely be in the squad, I think. But yeah, I don't, I don't think he'd be edging out Sexton to start. But yeah. as we've said, it's a completely hypothetical situation. He's not going to get picked. As Simon Zebo would, would tell you only too well. So that's pretty much us for this week then. We shall be back next week to look back at what could potentially be a win over Wales, a defeat to Wales. And either way, that will severely colour the perspective of next week's podcast as we look ahead to what will be the home game against France, which Johnny is already very much looking forward to. But until then, we'll also have uh, presumably plenty more Ulster contracts to look at as well, possibly including Sparky. We're not sure. So I'm very much looking forward to the tea lady and I'll her contract extension. I'm, I'm expecting five years. It, it's coming. I'm a bit miffed I haven't got one myself at this point. <laughs> no, I've had my phone on loud the whole time just in case I don't want to miss a call, you know. Yeah, so, wait look- for Johnny Petrie's name to flash up. <laughs> Until next week, from Adam McKendrick, thank you all. Cheers, guys. Jonathan Bradley, thank you very much, John. Cheers, thank you. And from myself, Gareth Anna, thanks for listening.